The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Opus Energy Insights on Barron's Live. I'm Denton Sincrograno, Chief Oil Analyst at Opus, a Dow Jones company. And my guests today are two of my colleagues, Dr. James Stevenson, Executive Director of Research Lead at McCloskey uh, by Opus, and Umberto J. Roca, Carbon Markets Editors of Opus. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. And Umberto, you're still there. James, you're back. But the COP28 event still going on, still several more days. Umberto, I know you're tired and it's nine o'clock at night there right now. So I promise we'll go gentle on you. But really based on the headlines that have come from the from it, the urgency to reduce emissions uh, has become even more pressing these days and to, to limit the, the, the increase in temperatures. But one thing that has become clear after the last couple of years, the whole electrify everything uh, strategy, it's still probably decades away. So both of you, I'm going to ask you, you were both there. Like I said, Umberto, you're still there. James, you were there last week. Um, give me one key takeaway uh, from, from a boots on the ground perspective. Definitely. Uh, yeah. So hello, everyone. It's, it is 9 p.m. here in Dubai. It's been a long week. Uh, I think key takeaway, I mean, we did start off with a running start with loss and damage funds being arranged the first day. And this is, again, there are still a couple of things to work on and that we might go into depth into that later, but it got off to a running start. Uh, every day has been packed with news, whether it's talking about carbon capture, decarbonizing certain uh, steel or the steel or cement industry worldwide. But a key takeaway, I think it's very interesting to note that this event is taking place in a post-Inflation Reduction Act world. Uh, a lot of talk has been going on about how the U.S. is giving incentives, tax credits, and that's really pulling a lot of talent, a lot of money, and companies are going to the U.S. to kind of make the most out of this, whether that's sustainable aviation fuel, carbon capture. There's a lot of things that are packed in the bill, and a lot of the people that I've met, whether they're from the EU or other countries or other regions, no other country can match this in terms of funding. No other country has the ability to do this, uh, even countries as rich or you know regions as powerful as the EU. So there's there's... It's really interesting to see the innovative ways that company, the countries are looking to set up similar incentives. Incentives, as we've seen, this does work in, in things like carbon markets and things like nature markets. Uh, so we're seeing that in this COP and, you know, from events like seeing the Kenyan Civil Aviation Authority officer saying how Kenya is ready to produce sustainable aviation fuel using old refineries. Countries are looking for incentives to not match the IRA, but find creative ways of kind of bringing investment into their countries. The writing's on the wall. Decarbonization is what's going to be the next, you know, source of job creation for the next coming decades. So countries are finding creative solutions to this. And that's, I've been learning a lot about that here in Dubai. Yeah, I suppose in terms of big picture takeaways, uh, if this does turn out to be the first COP that has an agreement around the phase out of fossil fuels, I think uh, that will, of course, be a huge headline. Uh, I think the practical reality is uh, there probably won't be a whole lot of teeth to that agreement. Uh, and and in private discussions at COP, certainly, I think there was a lot of discussion around, uh, you know, uh, practical and pragmatic ways to reduce emissions. And 
and how we keep the world functioning uh, as we move through uh, the energy transition. One of my biggest takeaways, uh, which uh, I think is preempting one of our later questions, was was John Kerry specifically at our event said, this is about energy, but it's also about the transition. Uh, and, and my takeaway from that was, this is, uh, you know, we need to do the transition part right. You know, we, we can't ram, we can't just be at the goal, right? We need to get there and we need to do that in a, in a practical uh, way. Yeah, and, you know, to, to add on to that, the fact of the matter is also you have, you know, 60 oil and gas companies coming in to COP28 agreeing on uh, a reduction in methane and emissions. And, you know, if this transition, if what we believe is correct, that it's going to take decades and, and not just months and years, uh, you're going to need a, a full kind of uh, participation from, from every sort of energy producer. So um, let's talk more about the, the John Kerry talk at our, at our Journal House event. Um, Umberto, was there anything that you, you take away from, from, from his, uh, his talk? Yes, besides it being his birthday, I believe this week, um, uh, it was exciting to see someone who's been in this in politics for so long be so passionate and driven about making, leaving change, making change a a, a policy. And I think the was that he was saying this is bigger than the transition. He expressed some nervousness about 2024, but ultimately, a lot of the companies, again, the IRA and the building infrastructure law, have been so critical. Uh, to turning to turn to really stirring these uh, innovations in, in the business world, commerce. So I think when he was saying, you know, you know, there is some anxiety about 2024, but this is bigger than any politician. These things cannot be rolled back. These companies are already fitting themselves, navigating themselves towards this kind of world. The writing's on the wall. Other countries will take advantage of it if the U.S. kind of goes back on this. Uh, but that's I think my big takeaway was that, that no matter who wins next year. The investments are there, the laws are there, the tax credit incentives, and that's going to be something that companies are reacting to now, and they will react to that, making long-term strategy plans for the next decade. Yeah, I, I love that you said innovation there, because my big takeaway from his talk was uh, he talked a lot about technology and how technology will solve this. In a 30-minute interview, he mentioned the word fusion three times. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we would have heard about that at COP two years ago. It probably mentioned much at all. Uh, certainly, you know, the U.S. is uh, is investing in fusion, and I think there's a, a uh, pilot plant, a very very tiny scale, of course, uh, coming online in 2027, that he cited. But he didn't just talk about fusion; he talked about things like carbon capture, uh, Im improvements in uh, you know, renewables technologies and that kind of thing, and um, and those obviously being key parts, uh, uh, not only of the of the energy transition, but kind of the solution uh, to the carbon problem. Great, great. I do want to just kind of pivot a little bit for one of those kind of key fuels everyone likes to, to kind of focus on here in, in the short term. Uh, and this can be uh, a magic bullet somewhere down the line, but hydrogen, um, like I said, whether it's for power generation or used as a transportation fuel, there's a lot of, I wouldn't say hype, but a lot of hope more so uh, for hydrogen. And that could be that quote unquote magic bullet that I just mentioned. So, you know, what are some of the roadblocks that keep it you know, hydrogen is not ready for prime time yet. What does it need to get beyond to uh, become that that key fuel, whether it's for, like I said, for power generation or as a transportation fuel? Yeah, look, I think uh, there are many 
and and I think people need to be patient with hydrogen because it is very much a nascent fuel. Uh, in terms of ammonia, uh, it's still it's already heavily used in fertilizers and petrochemicals. But but as hydrogen itself, uh, we need more of it produced. We need firm plans for its production. Um, and, and I think we already have a lot of plans for its use. It was interesting. I heard a panelist saying, uh, you know, we really need term deals. Okay. If you want someone to produce hydrogen, they need a 10 or 20 year deal right. uh, to, to get financing for that. And on the end use side, the end users need to be able to have a, a long period of hydrogen uh, that they can utilize. There are challenges around uh, transporting hydrogen. Okay, it needs to be 20 Kelvin, so minus 250 Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Um, it's acidic in pipelines, so you need certain uh, pipelines. It, even more so, it, there are questions around whether it will commoditize, whether, whether it will turn into a globally traded market, or if it will be significantly produced at the demand site and, and perhaps not turn into as much of a commodity as, as many others. Um, but, but clearly a lot of plans to use it uh, all the way from energy production to steel making, for example. Right, right. So, you know, just kind of two uh, quick comments there um, on the transition from Celsius to Fahrenheit. I just think that translates to really, really, really cold. Really cold. <laughs> but also, you know, and, and again, Almost right? Ice, right? Yeah, exactly. So, but you know, and the crazy thing is, you know, hydrogen as a transportation fuel. I think the best application for that will be in heavy-duty trucking. Um, if you look right now, there are actually some hydrogen filling stations, mostly on the West Coast in California. Mm -hmm. But you look to say, I want to go out and buy a, a hydrogen fuel cell car tomorrow. I don't have many options. So, again, I think if I could distill what you just said into one common, you know, kind of phrases. If you build it, they will come, but you need the incentives to build it first. You know, it's kind of like LNG. You need these long-term commitments before you could build out the infrastructure because this infrastructure is is, is not going to be not going to be cheap, and you're going to need that kind of help as well. So, um, tell me a little bit more. You mentioned it at the end, but green steel and and kind of that interplay between uh, green steel and hydrogen. I was lucky enough to interview the uh, Chief Sustainability Officer from Vattenfall and the Chief Technical Officer from SSAB, uh, two Swedish companies who are jointly producing the world's first hydrogen steelmaking facility. Uh, this is part of the uh, what's known as the green steel uh, future. Um, very interesting discussion and, uh, you know, it's great to see that technology proven and coming online at scale. Uh, the big questions in steelmaking, though, uh, currently 75 to 80% of the world's steel comes from coal. Uh, we are moving away from coal very quickly and, and perhaps faster, I think, than the steel industry is ready for. Uh, it's very difficult to invest in coal. It's very difficult to get new mines up and, and permitted. So we really need green steel to take off. Uh, we don't have enough scrap uh, to simply recycle enough steel. That's one way to do green steel is just to, to recycle what you have currently. So there's very heavy pressure on, on technologies like hydrogen steel making to accelerate and grow. And if they can't, you know, there are risks of a tight steel market, uh, even in the 2030s. 
Wow, interesting. So I would like to remind everyone that it's actually 12.11 now, but the Q&A section is open. So feel free to submit any any questions you might have so for, for, the, for the panel here. So uh, Umberka, one of the things that did come out is that there are calls for more compliance with carbon markets uh, from the EU specifically. Um, how does that spur innovation? Uh, and then, you know, I'll kind of follow that up with a, a question about voluntary carbon markets. And what would a stricter regulation look like? Yes, so I, I cover compliance markets in the EU and the UK. So this is basically countries, regions that have a carbon price. For every metric ton of carbon dioxide you produce, you have to pay its equivalent uh, in order to surrender those emissions. So obviously there's an incentive to decarbonize. The less carbon you emit, the less amount of money you have to send to the EU. So in that sense, uh, we see examples of how the EU carbon market has been active since 2005. So it's almost nearing its 20 years. It's the oldest and the first uh, carbon market that's been established. The US doesn't have one. There are parts of the US that have it, like California, Washington State. So these policies, and I had the opportunity to talk to Sergio Menendez, who was the, he's the president of the Europe, Middle East and Africa region for Semex, one of the world's largest cement manufacturers. And he was saying, in you know, policies incentives work, and because of this, Semex has decreased their 40 percent in their emissions in the past ten years. And you know, they have goals for 2030, for 2040, and that's only possible because of the carbon price. Cement is a very hard to decarbonize sector. And there's a lot of uh, it, it uses a lot of material that needs to be melted at really high temperatures, and that includes emitting a lot of carbon. So Sergio was telling me that you know, because we have these incentives, because we have this, we've had to innovate. They they produced a low carbon um, cement called Vertua, and that is up to 70, that uh, per kilo, it has 70% less emissions in CO2 in the production process, as opposed to, you know, a regular uh, kilo of cement. Uh, this, this was actually created in France, given that they have to pay for this carbon price. And I asked him, you know, is this something that you push to your other installations? They have installations worldwide. And he says, yes, the innovation starts in Europe because that's where we have to pay the highest price of carbon. And just to put this into perspective, that's around, right now the price is around 70 euros per metric ton. Multiply that by every kilo of uh, cement you produce. That's, it's a quite a hefty bill. So we see examples of this innovation being sent from Europe to other parts of the world that don't even have carbon prices. And again, like uh, like you were saying on the second day of COP28, EU commissioner, uh, the EU commission president Ursula von der Leyen was calling for more carbon markets worldwide. Yes, they may differ in the t in the price. Currently, China's just went into operation about two years ago. The price is floating around 10 euros per metric ton. So very big difference between that and the EU. But what we're seeing is that companies react to this. Companies have to pay high prices for this. And because there's an incentive to not have to pay so much by instead innovating, you see that these policies work. And uh, Denton, you mentioned the voluntary side of carbon markets. So this is where this is completely voluntary. Companies can choose <clears throat> sorry, to offset their emissions, to offset their carbon footprint. And we see we this year there's been a lot of uh, media reports um, against some projects that you know are they actually delivering on these are they actually doing anything are they are they are these carbon credits real how do you measure this um, different developers have different standards and I think on um, last week uh, some of the leading carbon credit verifiers united together to say we're trying to develop a common standard be more transparent about the methodology be more transparent about what a carbon credit looks like in oaxaca mexico as opposed to you know in tokyo japan very different ecosystems very different policies um and so again there, there's been a, due to media reporting this year there's been now a lot more collaboration between these 
leading enterprises. And now calls for a common methodology are becoming um, the norm. And I think we've seen that uh, in the first week of COP. How far along the line is that? Is that, you know, kind of reaching that common methodology? Yes. So right now, every there, there's there's companies like Gold Standard, Vera. They they verify projects in different parts of the world, and again, they are competitors. But this is something they have outlined at least eight factors of what can you know account for better com uh, common standards, so to speak. So that's more transparency, ensuring that the money that is paid by companies to carbon credit developers goes to local communities. That was one of the, the criticisms earlier this year. Was that you know money wasn't flowing to these communities and that's one of the social aspects of these type of markets so there is more calls for transparency but they're as of now they're developing you know the common standards for that but that's something that'll be an ongoing work into next year okay yeah uh so james uh we've heard about the epa finalizing rules on methane and pushes to reduce coal consumption particularly in asia where we're starting to see more plants actually being built for, for power generation. Uh, what are your thoughts from what you were seeing and hearing at COP28 about that energy transition and what it's going to mean for the electric power sector? Uh, look, I think for, yeah, the methane rule, I think is a big deal. Uh, it, it will increase the cost of production or rather transportation primarily of natural gas. It will also improve yield. So we're looking currently at uh, just what the impact is on delivered cost of natural gas to power plants, for example. But uh, it's difficult to see how it wouldn't be a higher delivered cost. So, uh, you know, that has a whole lot of ramifications. It, ironically, it'll improve the competitiveness of coal plants relative to natural gas. Uh, however, it'll move, it'll make all fossil fuel generation more expensive. Um, and, and, you know, obviously some time before that comes in. And, and the head of the EPA spoke at our General House event and, and he was asked about, look, is this going to get challenged in, in court? And and he, I mean, I think he was fairly open saying, yeah, you know, we, we could be sued on this. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that part of it plays out. Across COP, of course, a lot of efforts to reduce coal-fired generation in other parts of the world. Uh, an agreement to help uh, Vietnam build a lot more renewables with the aim of reducing uh, coal-fired generation, at least proportionally. Coal-fired generation is certainly growing in a country like Vietnam and, and will at least through this decade, uh, but it you know, proportionally reduces it since you push more of that growth to renewables. You know, against this, we've had recent announcements uh, you know, from China building 80 gigawatts of uh, new coal plants uh, in India, you know, coincidentally also building 80 gigawatts of new coal plants. So fossil fuels are going to be around for some time um, and it'll be really interesting to see on Tuesday what this final agreement looks like and uh, and just how quickly phase out of fossil fuels uh, is kind of earmarked in that. Right. And again, you know, you, you think about how much the population has grown over the past hundreds of, you know, couple hundred years. You know, there's more than 8 billion people on the planet right now. We're going to need energy no matter whatever source it comes from, you know, obviously there's the need to decarbonize, but fact of the matter is we're going to need energy as we, you know, progress on this, uh, on this wild ride that we're on. But, um, Umberto, the, so I saw, I saw, um, a story about, uh, Northvolt. They have a new, uh, a breakthrough on a new sodium ion battery. How much of a game changer is this? 
Yes, this is one of the really exciting news heading into COP. Uh, so there is uh, Northvolt uh, and the CEO, Peter Carlson, was here at COP two days ago. He, so there's been a breakthrough in sodium ion batteries. Currently, a lot of the batteries that are used are lithium. They're smaller. They operate at large capacities. Sodium ion batteries lag behind them. They're much bigger. They don't operate at the same capacity. But now uh, Carlson has said that they have you know, validated that it can work at 160 uh, gigawatts per hour so that makes you know it makes it for a lot of improvement and, and they can make them they can make them smaller they can make them just as good as lithium now that is just started so that just was announced in the past week they've been pouring years of research into this it's a game changer in the sense that it can it, this doesn't use cobalt doesn't use nickel it doesn't use lithium so these are mineral resources that china uh, they doesn't um that china controls it has a lot of percentage of that so Carlson was saying, having this, we don't rely on this for China. We don't rely on its supply chain. We can create these batteries and, you know, have an independent supply chain. Uh, now, obviously, the big issue now is scaling up. How do you scale this up? Apparently, Northvolt has around 10 operations in the, the EU, Canada, and the U.S. Uh, and I asked Carlson, you know, will this breakthrough, will you increase your footprint in terms of will you build more factories? And as of now, the plan is to keep the same factories that you have but start pouring research and money and investments into scaling up this battery. But it is a game changer in the sense that it it, it, it makes, one of the panelists was actually asking, is this too good to be true? Uh, but again, the big problem with any innovation is how do you scale this up? So I think that is the challenge ahead for Northvolt, but it is very exciting news, uh, you know, that it's an independent supply chain. The carbon emissions are much, much lower. Um, so now the question is, how do you scale this up? But it's something very exciting. And again, it comes from being in a place that with policy that pushes for innovation, that pushes for, you know, making things that lower your carbon footprint and seeing this at COP was really, really exciting. That's great. And so, you know, I'm going to go back to some of your original comments, Umberto, about, you know, kind of what you were seeing there. And, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about loss and damage and, uh, you know, between phase out, phase down and phase out. Can you give us a quick explanation and also, you know, what are some of the negotiating negotiating sticking points? Yes, definitely. And, and like I was at COP27 last year in Egypt as well. Loss and damage was one of the big victories, but that took until the very last day to negotiate this. It was thanks to a couple of countries that stood by and said, you know, we, it is about time. Loss and damage, as much as it's been said and talked about in the past year, it's been a decades old demand, I think, stemming back to the 90s. Loss and damage fund essentially is the funding which developed countries but millions, billions, billions of dollars, frankly, are necessary to mitigate the effects of climate change, adaptation, resiliency. So this is a demand that's been in the in the airways for, for, for decades, but it finally was launched last year in COP27. And the first day of COP this year, it was agreed to, to essentially operationalize it. And what does that mean this year? So that means the World Bank will be in charge of it for four years in the interim and overseen by an independent body. Uh, but the big questions and the big sticking points for the loss and damage fund are now, you know, how uh, how do you ensure transparency? How will the World Bank issue these funds to countries? Who gets them first? I mean, I believe there's $450 million in the fund that now that's, according to, you know, reports, 0.2% of what is needed, what has been demanded. It is nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. But now the question is, how do you administer these funds? How do you do, how do you ensure that they're delivered? So that's something I think that that will be a big sticking point in the coming days. We're expecting to, I fly out, I fly out on the 13th, but negotiators will probably be working until the very, very end of the 13th, if not the 14th. Um, and you also mentioned, so there was loss and damage fund. And the other question, phasing, phasing down, phasing out. That is the big, big, 
the big two phrases I think of this COP28. Um, countries that depend on oil, on coal and gas and other fossil fuels are calling for a phasing down. That leaves the door open for, you know, it doesn't say what pace, it doesn't say uh, what rate you'll be doing. Uh, phasing out is fully phasing out that type of fossil fuel reliance. And that's become, I mean, it's, it is being hosted in Dubai. It's being hosted by an oil country. So I think that's something that we're also going to see a lot of tension between players. I mean, today in the plenary, Saudi Arabia was saying we need to focus on adaptation, on lowering emissions. And, and Colombia's one of Colombia's uh, delegation members was saying, no, we need to focus on the source, and that is fossil fuels. We need to phase these out. Colombia, uh, the president, Gustavo Petro, announced that he was joining the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty. Again, this is nothing formal, but it is an, uh, Colombia, whose 10% of GDP relies on oil and natural gas, um, is making these types of commitments because they are suffering climate change uh, with floods and you know, events like this. So we're saying that that will be the big sticking point. And while there have been rewordings and rephrasings, it'll come down to what is chosen between phasing down and phasing out. But again, being in Dubai, it might be a difficult thing and it'll it'll go on for days. Yeah. So uh, James, after everything you've been seeing coming out of COP28, how do your forecasts change or are they going to change? They're probably not. Uh, is the short answer. I, you know, we've always, uh, you know, we forecast uh, a range of mining uh, commodities focused on steelmaking and electric power sector. So we have always had forecasts of coal declining into the long term, um, you know, rising demand for battery raw materials and that kind of thing. I wasn't seeing anything that made me think, oh, wow, we really need to, uh, you know, change any of these outlooks. Uh I, I think if anything, yeah, I think despite the headlines and, you know, the push for getting rid of fossil fuels and so forth, I, th I think there is a, what we've seen over the last few years between COVID, all the supply chain problems, uh, you know, the Russia-Ukraine war uh, is, you know, a bit of a pause and, you know, let, let's make sure we're doing this right. Let, let's make sure we're not endangering electric uh, availability. Uh, you know, one of the worst things for economies and, and for people is if you can't get electricity in the middle of a winter, say. So, um, but yeah, nothing really that caused me to change our, uh, our outlooks. But it sounds like a little bit more kind of internal reflection by those that are, you know, kind of running the show, so to speak. Like, hey, you know what, this isn't going to be as easy maybe as we once thought, you know, five, 10 years ago. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a sound like a little bit of self-reflection to me. So one last final question before we get to, you know, some of the audience questions, but um, is there anything that, that was missing that, that you didn't hear about that kind of surprises you? I, look, I'll kick off. I was a bit surprised we didn't hear more about adaptation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think when, you know, 10, 15 years ago, adaptation was very topical. Uh, we saw, for example, people building higher seawalls around refineries on the Gulf Coast, uh, Florida moving electric power lines underground increasingly. We didn't hear so much about that. Even in a 1.5 degree scenario, there's a huge requirement for adaptation. Uh, you know, I think the loss and damage fund is a little bit in that direction, uh, but didn't hear a whole lot about you know what, we need to make the world ready for this, you know, mm. amount of climate change, whether it's a one and a half degrees or two or, or two and a half. Roberto, anything yeah. stand out here? 
Yeah, and, and it might be very, very niche, but I've heard, uh, I met a couple of insurance people who are in the U.S., you know, a lot of insurers have pulled out of insuring, you know, for wildfires in California, for hurricanes in Houston. And I think that hasn't, I haven't really, and that, it might fit into what James was talking about, adaptation, at least from a financial service perspective. But it's something that I haven't really heard much about. You know, I've been running from pavilion to pavilion, different events, but I think that the, the topic of insurance, and it might be, you know, not available everywhere, but it is, I think, an important question. You know, if insurers aren't able to provide the services for very real events and catastrophes, what does that say about the direction of the insurance industry in, in the in, with climate change? I mean, it just, I think, from meeting some of the insurance people at different events, I just think it's something that should be talked about more. How do you move beyond a, a place that can't be insured? How, how do you provide uh, safety, reliance for people, for residents in areas like that. Um, and I think this goes beyond the Austin Damage Fund, uh, which again, is just a drop in the bucket and billions are needed. And frankly, that's something that might take years to scale up to once we even have a mechanism to ensure that those funds go out to the people in the countries that need them. Right, right. So, all right, here's some some questions that we have uh, from the audience and, and thank you again for submitting these. But uh, this one's from Martz. What's your outlook for US solar panel production? Uh, look, it's certainly going to grow. Uh, my group doesn't forecast actual uh, production of it, but certainly we do forecast the raw materials. And between the IRA, uh, you know, creating investment in in both mining of the raw materials that go into uh, solar panels um, and, and also intermediate uh, parts of them, and also uh, a, a theme we've seen in the last few years of onshoring uh, and certainly, you know, keenness to reduce or eliminate supply chains, uh, remove uh, supply chains that potentially come from countries that uh, you might not want to source raw materials from. Uh, I think a bit of a focus around the fact that a lot of the raw materials for batteries and, and solar and renewables come from China uh, and, you know, potential risk associated with that. Um, so certainly, yeah, solar panel industry in the U.S. is going to grow and grow rapidly. Okay. So, and again, I'm going to apologize if I don't pronounce your name correctly, but Urquiza, how does the development of green hydrogen compare to other alternatives like biofuels? Uh, look, I think they're both growing. Uh, we're certainly, you know, certainly different use cases for each. Uh, you know, biofuels have been around longer. Um, at, at least relative to hydrogen, ammonia has been around for quite a long time. Um, you know, look, I think all are needed. I think one of the, you know, one of the best solutions, I think, to climate change generally is trying a lot of stuff, see yeah. what works best, Let, letting competition figure it out. Hmm. Okay, great. Um, this one's from Madeline. How was the general, and, and you guys were there, so how was the general atmosphere and energy at, uh, at you know, not like the people energy at, uh, at COP28. And what were people most excited about that you saw? Um, yes, I think it's been exciting. I mean, again, I, I think, and I'm talking to a lot of people in the NGO world, I don't think anyone expected loss and damage to fund, at least, and I guess, and again, like I said, there's still a lot of parsing through the words for that to be finalized, but I don't think a lot of people expected that to be settled from day one, settled in the sense that this is something that's going to go forward. We have funding for it, but I think that really gave a lot of, you know, uh, encouragement to people. It kind of gave a boost 
uh, to people participating in these things. So I think people are very excited. Obviously, there's been a couple of protests here as well on a number of topics. You know, phasing it's more about phasing out fossil fuels as opposed to phasing down. Um, so the, the excitement has been there. And I think one of the topics uh, has been really, I mean, loss and damage when it was really big, but also things like, uh, and maybe not everyone's aware, but nature markets and creating these markets that price, put a price on nature because nature obviously is something that we depend on, but businesses depend on as well. And there's a, there's a lot of policy in countries like Australia and the UK that are pushing for companies to disclose their effect, their, their, their impact on uh, biodiversity around the world, uh, depending on their supply chain. So I think that's something that's growing. Uh, and we're very much covering that. And I think that's something that will, will grow more. But I think meeting people in that world, seeing that this is something that has to happen in order for companies to be responsible for their emissions, for their carbon footprint, I think it is, is exciting. And meeting a lot of people in the world who are disclosing and developing new projects, I think is very exciting as well. Great. And, and James, you touched on this a little bit earlier on, but this is from Brister. It's interesting that fusion and fission are garnering a lot of interest this year, even over last year's COP uh, meeting, with commitments to triple nuclear energy production and the U.S. fusion strategy announcement by Senator Kerry. Insights on how nuclear energy and fusion will or will not be a player to tackle climate change, and, and how will this be financed? You know, look, I think as an impartial arm's length analyst who covers uh, the energy sector insofar as it, it uh, impacts electricity. I, I think this is a breath of fresh air. I think there's been nuclear fission has been uh, a, in my view, a terrific way to decarbonize. Right, minimal emissions, uh, very small supply chain challenges. Um, you know, obviously some serious safety issues in the past, but uh, new. Uh, yeah, these new small-scale uh, nuclear plants, uh, far safer and um, uh, flexible, get, getting costs down somewhat. So, I, look, I think it's terrific that there's a commitment to that um, because it and, and it also provides baseload electricity. Um, and I know there are some arguments about whether or not baseload is truly needed. Uh, it, it, I don't think power markets without baseload have been tested. So, you know, if you've got if you've got uh, nuclear plants in your pocket, that you know that gives you the baseload. You don't need to necessarily answer that question. So, look, I think very positive fusion. I think, uh, I, you know, I think the headline is, you know, let's. This is feeling tangible for the first time ever. You know, that old joke about fusion being twenty years away and it always will be. Uh, I think is is finally going to be retired. And I think uh, appropriate investment in seeing if it can be, uh, you know, part of this uh, energy mix uh, and, and ideally accelerating that as, as much as possible. And okay, so another one, uh, and we're gonna, we're gonna get through a good amount of these, so I'm happy about that. But Manion asks, how successful will carbon sequestration be? Umberto, you mentioned a little bit about carbon sequestration uh, earlier. Some more thoughts on that. Yes, um, it's it's a very interesting question, and a lot of the I've seen there's been a lot of lobbyists for the carbon capture, utilization, and storage side here at COP. It's something I cover as well in Europe and the UK. It's uh, carbon capture has been around for for decades, and it still remains very expensive. Is the question is how do you scale it up 
to make it more economically viable for companies. Uh, there's been a lot of criticism that it's been used by the oil and gas industry to produce more, to get more um, oil or gas out of the ground. So that's still there is still a lot of criticism facing the industry. We see that the IRA is definitely providing tax credits for companies that want to invest in carbon capture technology. We see a lot of that growing in the US. In the UK has dedicated 20 billion pounds across 20 years to grow this type of technology as well. So I think at least for carbon sequestration, for carbon capture technology, I think that's something that unfortunately still has yet to scale down. I mean, in Europe, I believe there's 50 to 300 um, million tons of carbon dioxide that can be taken out of the air currently. But that needs to be scaled up by 120 times in order for the EU to reach net zero. So again, that really leaves the scale of the work that needs to be done for this to become something that, I, and again, it is a technology that is needed. You definitely need carbon capture in order to reach net zero goals. But the scaling up, I think, and incentives like the IRA do work. And I, But I, the unfortunate thing there is that it's only countries like the US that can provide such incentives at such scale. So again, it's something that needs to be scaled up by 120 times in the EU in order to reach net zero goals. Uh, technology is there. It's been around for decades, but it still requires a lot of work to scale up in order to reach economically viable levels for companies to invest in. Great. Thank you. And so I'm going to leave us with this one last one. And this is a kind of a, a big picture one. This is from Fred. Is 1.5 degrees or even 2 degrees attainable? It's going to be really hard. I think it's the summary. Uh, it, yeah, look, I think if, if we can get to 1.5, it's probably... Uh, uh, you know, significant technological developments. Uh, I, I think the reality is that, uh, you know, the world has a lot of momentum to it and the energy sector has a lot of momentum to it. And, you know, as much as we want to get and need to get to, uh, you know, these climate goals, it's going to be very, very challenging. So I'd, I'd come out and say I think very 1.5 is extremely unlikely. Roberto, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I do have to agree with James. I think it is something that is now becoming, you know, it's it's a, it's a threshold that we're definitely going to be above at this point. Um, I've been talking to a lot of people as a journalist covering this, and you know, a lot of people do tell me, you know, as a journalist, it's their responsibility to say that you can't have it's, and it's not a defeatist attitude. It's it's some of the facts. It's based on science. It's what we've seen, but you do have to provide, I believe, alternatives or solutions to this. You know. Um, whether that is phasing down, phasing out policy, including policy work, incentives. Again, I, I, and I've probably said this word 20 times, but incentives and policy and regulation does work. It gets um, innovation out there. So I think that's something that's just going to have to grow. But I think uh, to answer your question, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think it's attainable, but it's something that we very much have to abide by as a maximum. And I think we're over that, but we still have to keep track of that and not let it get out of control before, before it gets worse. Yeah, and even not even though it's not attainable, just continue to work towards it at least. Um, yeah. So, But uh, I think we're going to have to cut it off there because that's all the time we have. But thank you for being here, James, Umberto. Great, Pleasure. great chat. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and everyone else for tuning in, thank you so much. But please join us again on Monday where Barron Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rubin and Deputy Editor Ben Levinson discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks with technical analyst and publisher of The Institutional View. Andy Addison, thanks for listening. Stay well. Have a great weekend. And if we don't talk to you again, enjoy the holiday season. Thank you. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. 
Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.